For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So 10 years ago, uh, Kevin and I turned on the television and there was a new series that was just starting that night on TNT. It was called Saving Grace. And it starred an actress whose work I've long enjoyed, Holly Hunter. She played the character Detective Grace Hannah Darko. And uh, she, she had uh, some redeeming qualities about her, um, but the, she was definitely not a role model that we would want to hold up to our, our young girls and say emulate her, right? She was a, she was a loving aunt and a, and a daughter and a very loyal friend, but at the same time, she was a foul-mouthed, hard-drinking, promiscuous homebreaker. Homebreaker. I mean, that's what she was. And that pilot episode, it was kind of shocking to have this little gal who is a detective be living like this and, and as the episode progressed one evening she after a after a drunken haze in a drunken haze and after an illicit hookup she's driving home and she's drunk while she's driving and she hits a man out in the middle of this country road and kills him and she comes out and she falls down onto the street and she begins to scream and cry, realizing how her life is being turned upside down. And she turns to the heavens and she calls out to God and begins to pray and ask for help. And God answers her prayer. He sends an angel. Now, he didn't look like an angel. He looked like a homeless person who had walked out of the woods. But he ends up being an angel. And he proceeds to tell her, Grace Hanadarko, you're on a road that is going to split hell wide open. You're going to hell. If you haven't realized it yet, that's where you're going to end up. And if you don't start doing better and straightening up your act and living better, you're going to spend eternity in hell. Let me tell you, it's a horrible place. And she's shocked, right? And this, this episode this, or this whole series, it, it resonated in many ways, right? First of all, it it was dealing with an issue of how do you live a virtuous, moral, good life in a world that is progressively and increasingly becoming more and more evil, and, and especially people like our first responders, they come face to face with this evil every single day, and how do they live a, a good life and not become alcoholics and that type of, it's a, it's a real problem. It also touched on the reality that every one of us we crave and we need God's grace. But of course, in true Hollywood fashion, and based off the false religions of this world, they rejected the gospel in this series, and instead they perverted God's grace into something that was ugly and, and it completely missed the meaning of what God's grace is. That word grace in the New Testament, it comes from the underlying Greek word charis. And in the ancient world, in classical Greek, the grace was never extended to anyone but your immediate family, your, your closest loved ones. This is how grace was experienced. No one outside that inner circle. But in the New Testament, it's used very, very differently. God's grace is pictured 
as something. It's, it's what is it? The little, the little way that many of us learned it, it was it's undeserved, unmerited favor. God's undeserved, unmerited favor, something that we do not deserve or work or earn. It is God providing for people who cannot provide for themselves. And so starting in Genesis and working your way all the way through the Bible, you see this concept of God's grace, God providing for people who cannot provide for themselves, as Brian Chappell defines grace. God's grace is a magnificent thing. And this morning, I want us to see something. I want us to get our heads around something that that Ben just mentioned in his prayer, that God's grace is necessary for both our salvation and our sanctification. God's grace is necessary for the forgiveness of our sins, salvation, and it's necessary for our growth in holiness, our, our, our sanctification. God's grace. Let's start in verse 11. Let's see how God's grace saves us. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Bringing salvation, right? This is touching on, it's implying, hey, we all have great need. What is that need? For our sins to be forgiven. The scriptures teach us that every one of us is born completely incapable of pleasing God. Sin has so radically corrupted us and polluted us that in our natural state, we can do absolutely nothing that pleases God. Last week in message in this series, Randy Pope talked about how we are born. Yes, we have free will, but the problem is we don't have ability. We, we are completely free. We have the liberty. There's nothing stopping us from God's end and working and serving Him and living for Him. The problem is we are inherently so corrupted by sin that we do not have the ability to do anything that is spiritually pleasing to God. Even the good, virtuous works that people in our world do, that we do before Christ, they are tainted and they are polluted by self-centeredness, by an inner desire to do this work because we get something out of it. So even our good works are bad. We're born like this. And in our pride and our sin, right, our, our sinful pride, we think that in order to get to heaven, to not split hell's gates wide open, we just need to do better. Straighten up, get our act together, clean ourselves up. And as a result, when we die, you know, God will let us in. This isn't the message of the scriptures at all. This isn't what Jesus teaches at all. Hollywood misses it completely. The false religions of the world have completely blown it. The scriptures tell us, right? For by grace, You have been saved because of God's unmerited, undeserved favor. You have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. The grace, the faith, this is God's gift to us. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This is God's saving grace. It's a beautiful thing. It's a magnificent thing. We see it described in this passage in several ways, and there's, I want us to kind of see these descriptions of God's grace in the passage. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Underline that phrase, for all people. The very first thing we need to understand about God's saving grace is that it's inclusive. 
The good news of the gospel is if you're here this morning and you're wanting to begin a relationship with God, you know that you need God in your life and you sense this, and maybe you've come in with a friend or a parent or whoever, maybe you're here all by yourself and you just walked in these doors, the good news is that you fit within the category of all people. See, Timothy uses this expression, or excuse me, Paul uses this expression intentionally. And he uses it in, like in Timothy chapter 2, when he tells us to pray for all men. Now, it's impossible for us to write to pray for every person who's ever lived or is living or will live. Paul doesn't use the expression like this. He's, he's referring to categories. In other words, every category of person we should be praying for, willing to pray for. And he goes on and he describes it. He says, you know, those who govern and those who are governed and the Jew and the Gentile, those who have lots of education and very little education, who are wealthy and who are poor and whatever the skin color may be, pray for them. And and this is the idea here. No matter where you are in your life, you may be well-educated or not very well-educated. You may have a great paying job or be unemployed. You may be white or brown or black or some person of color. You may be Jew or Gentile. You may be an American or you may be an immigrant. You may be a Republican or a Democrat. Regardless of the category, God's grace is for you. Not too sure about Tennessee volunteer fans, but everybody else. No, everyone, even Tennessee volunteer fans, Carissa Dimitzioli, right? God's grace is for you. And that's the good news this morning. God's grace is inclusive. As you read on in verse 14, who, Jesus, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. The second idea showing us the beauty of God's grace, right? It's inclusive, but it's also invaluable. The first half of verse 14 shows us how expensive our ransom is was how invaluable, how priceless God's grace is. Jesus gave himself so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be ransomed. We're familiar, most of us are familiar with that terminology, right? We've watched television programs, we remember from our history books, people who were kidnapped, and then they're held captive and a ransom is demand for their freedom. In our own history, back in the the 30s, you had the Lindberghs, Charles Lindbergh, the great aviator. His baby was kidnapped and held for a $50,000 ransom. They paid it, and then they discovered the baby, the child had been killed. And earlier, or later, closer to us now, in the 70s, you had, you know, J. Paul Getty, the the multi-billionaire oil tycoon. His grandson was kidnapped, and they asked for a $3 million ransom, drop in the bucket to J. Paul Getty, and he refused to pay it. (laughs) And he just wouldn't give him a dime until they started sending body parts to the newspaper, and then he came off the the dime and paid ransom. Frank Sinatra, many of you loved his music, most people don't know that his son, Frankie Jr., was kidnapped and held for ransom, and he paid a $250,000 ransom and got his freedom. You see, we understand this terminology, and the point here is this. We are born in captivity to sin. This is how we come into the world. We're slaves to sin. The concept of our free will is grossly overestimated in the modern terminology and idea. We are not free 
and the sense that we can do anything that we want to do, including pleasing God. We don't have the ability. Instead, we are free to do something sin. And that's what we do. And we have to be ransomed from that captivity. And the giving of that ransom, Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, this is the ultimate example of God's saving grace who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and, and here's the third idea his grace right it's inclusive and it's invaluable it's also intentional and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works God is up to something deeply mysterious and wonderful He's redeemed us for an eternal reason, a mysterious reason. We don't understand why he has done it, but the reason is simply this, to purify for himself a group of people who will live with him as his children for all of eternity. God's grace, it's magnificent as it saves us, it delivers us from the penalty of sin. And if that's all God's grace did, that would be enough for us to gather and to worship him and to praise him. But we see something else about God's grace in verse 12. Not only does it save us and deliver us from the penalty of sin, it transforms us, it sanctifies us, and delivers us from the power of sin. Verse 12 says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. You know, for many of us who've been raised in the church, perhaps we were educated in a, a parochial school or a Christian school, the idea of God's grace training us to live a holy life, a godly life, this can be a foreign concept. At the very least, it's a a hard concept to grasp. Uh, Jerry Bridges has written extensively. He just passed away about a year or so ago, but he's written extensively on the Christian's journey in holiness. He's, he's authored books like The Pursuit of Holiness and Discipline by Grace and Transforming Grace and many others. And in his writings, he provides some diagrams that describe, I think, probably many of us in this room and the majority of evangelicals have experiences such as this. He, he says, first of all, in this first diagram that, that really our whole life is, really comes down to three pivotal points. We have our birth, we have our death, and in between we have salvation. But between our birth and our salvation, we are unbelievers, right? We're outside the family of God. But then when we come to trust Christ, we become believers, members of the family of God. And until that point of salvation, the key message, the key words that we hear and that we need to hear are the gospel, the gospel of God's grace that comes in Jesus Christ. This is what we need to hear. And this is what we hear. And this is what brings us to salvation but then he makes an interesting point. He said something happens after we get saved, right? The, the key word that maybe describes between salvation and death is discipleship. 
And, and there's, it's understanding how, understandable how this occurs, right? Jesus himself says, go and make disciples, teaching them to what? What's the next word? Obey. All things whatsoever I have commanded you. And so the focus in our lives after salvation becomes following Christ. It becomes discipleship. How do we live this life of a Christian to become more and more holy and the spiritual disciplines and, and all of this? That's, and this becomes our focal point and the key word and the key concept that captures our attention after salvation is discipleship. But the problem with this understanding of the Christian life is that it will inevitably lead to either legalism, where you become a very self-righteous modern type of Pharisee, or you become a discouraged, beaten down, disillusioned follower of Jesus Christ who becomes done with church and the Christian faith. Uh, how many people in our society today, people that you know, I know, are at home this morning, and they don't darken a church, and they'll say, well, I believe in Jesus, but man, church, and it just isn't working out. And what are they getting at? They, they've grown disillusioned, <clears throat> discouraged. And why does this happen? Church, understand something. Depending on God's grace for our transformation and our growth in holiness is just as vital as depending upon God's grace for our salvation and our adoption into the family of God. Depending on God's grace for our sanctification is just as vital as depending upon God's grace for our justification. And without this continual experience of God's grace as we follow Christ, the law of Christ will become as burdensome and impossible to fulfill as the law of Moses. You're familiar with the law of Moses, right? Most of you. If you're not, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. 248 of them are positives. 365, one for each day of the year, are negatives. I mean, think about the Old Testament, right? And the, all those laws. I mean, you have the Ten Commandments. The, and thou shalt not steal and, <clears throat> excuse me, you know, thou shalt not lie and honor your father and mother and don't blaspheme and don't covet your neighbor's boat and all these different things are in the Ten Commandments, right? And then we have all these other laws in the Old Testament, how to worship God and not worship God, how to deal with your husband and your wife and your children, how to treat the immigrant in your country, the poor, those in need. He deals with our sex lives, our interpersonal relationships in the law. Talks a lot about our money and how we're to be generous and use God's money. And it's all there, 613 laws. Moses gives. At the end of his life, he's talking to the Israelites and he's exhorting them. And listen to what he says in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And if, important word here, right? If you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, 
The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And then in verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Aren't you glad that we live in the New Testament and not under that? I mean, think about it. We get saved and we pretty quickly, you know, we, we get it, we learned a big five, right? Read your Bible daily. Pray regularly. You know, come to church corporately and worship God every week unless you're providentially hindered. You know, use your gifts in the church and build it up. And then the fifth one, right? The first day of the week, bring your money into the storehouse and fund the kingdom of God. We learned those big five right away. And we get a hold of at least four of those five, and we do all right with them, right? I'll let you figure out which one we don't always grab. But hey, four out of five is 80% by today's standards. That's a B. It's pretty good, right? You know, but it's not long. Something happens in our Christian experience. As we read our Bible daily, and we sit under the preaching and teaching of God's Word, we start reading it. And we realize it has a lot to say. I mean, just take this little passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen to it. Just listen to it this morning. Verse 24. I need to get a bigger print Bible. <laughs> it says, Put on the new self, <clears throat> created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Put away falsehood. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. That sounds a whole lot like thou shalt not what? Lie. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. That sounds a whole lot like thou shalt not steal, doesn't it? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another." tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you, and be an imitator of God. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, but sexual immorality, uh-oh, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's just about nine or ten verses. And then he goes on and he says, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
and don't be drunk with wine. Sing hymns and psalms and spiritual songs and praise the Lord. And wives, submit to your husbands. And husbands, love and cherish and honor your wife even when she's not submitting to you. And children, obey your parents. And masters and servants, employers and employees, give your employer a full day's work and honor him as your boss. Put on the armor of God. Fight the good fight. Pray without ceasing. How we do in church? And this is just one out of 27 books in the New Testament. I mean, Christ sums it up like this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit, and love your neighbor as yourself. How'd you do with that one this week? And it's not long as a Christian, as we read and we see it, and we started out with our list of five, and then it becomes six and seven and eight and 12 and 15 and check and check and check. And before you know it, you know what happens, church? You know what happens to Christians? We end up with the same mentality that the Israelites lived under the Mosaic law and the old covenant, and it takes a hold of us. I have to obey to be blessed by God. And if I disobey, I'll be cursed by God. And look at this list. I got to get busy. I got to straighten up. I got to get my act together. Or else, I might get into heaven, but it's by the hair of my chinny chin chin. This is what takes hold. I wonder how many of us this morning, I wonder how many of us this morning that we, we live like this. Either consciously or subconsciously, this is how we relate to God. We interact with God. This is, this is why verse 12 is so important. God's grace, he says in verse 11, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. God's grace trains us. It's the, it's the Greek word paiduo. It means to provide instruction with the intent of forming proper habits of behavior. That's what it means. And in the New Testament, you'll see it translated different ways. Teaching, to teach, to educate, to train, to, to discipline, as in God disciplines his children whom he loves in order to form holiness. It's an important word to train. God's grace trains us, but it's a curious phrase, right? When we think of teaching and training and educating and discipline, we think of a person. So how does an attribute of God end up teaching and empowering us? Well, understand that what's happening here is that Paul is personifying God's grace. He, he's referring, he's actually referring to God in Christ who gives us the gift of the Holy Spirit who now lives inside of us. And this Spirit, God himself, he's training us, he's teaching us, he's educating us, he's guiding us, he's disciplining us in order to transform us to make us holy as he is holy. 
And we don't deserve this intervention and this activity in our lives. We've, we've done nothing to deserve it. God has done this on his initiative, and that makes it grace. God providing for us when we can't provide for ourselves. And, and all those, I mean, think about it, all those Old Testament requirements that the Israelites lived under, they too are an example of God's grace. I mean, the, the overarching command is, be holy for I am holy. You're my people. But we don't even know what holiness looks like without the law. The law helps us realize the depth of our sin. God in his grace through Moses brings his law to bear so that people realize, these Israelites, man, I'm in deep trouble. I need a deliverer, a rescuer, the one that was promised in, Abraham, in Adam and through Abraham and in the prophets, the Messiah. And all of these Old Testament requirements these, this covenant that they were under was meant to encourage and help and train the Israelites to look to the one who would come and redeem them of their sins. And church, all of these New Testament imperatives that we just read in just that one simple little passage, they all do something. They drive us to Jesus who perfectly obeyed in our place every command and took our punishment upon him. God's grave, saving grace, this is what it always does. Old Testament, New Testament, God's saving grace always drives his people to look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And as we look to him, we worship him. We begin to commune with him. We spend time with him. And as this happens, the most astounding work of God's grace occurs in our lives. He gradually, but consistently and persistently transforms us into the image of the one whom we are looking to. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord. This doesn't come through your work. This doesn't come through your labor. This doesn't come through you doing better and doing more. Our transformation is the work of God in our life. It's His grace being experienced in time and space. God's grace, church, it opens our eyes at salvation. It opens our eyes and it teaches us who we are without Christ. And it teaches us who we are with Christ. Absolutely accepted and loved unconditionally by God because Jesus stood in our place. That if tomorrow you have absolutely the worst day of your entire Christian experience. I mean, you don't just sin, you sin gloriously. And tomorrow night, when you put your head 
down on that pillow. Here's the truth of the gospel. God does not love you one iota less for that very bad, horrible day that you just had. And on Tuesday, when you get up and you repent, and you have the absolute best day of your Christian walk, God doesn't love you one iota more for that great day. Because He loves us through Christ who took our place on the cross. And when we begin to understand it, as we grow in this understanding and we trust more and more in Jesus by His grace, we get a fuller understanding of what He's done. And as a result, the more we understand who we are in Christ and what He's done for us, we find that we want to live for Him. We want to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. We find that we have the power to do so. Because in the Old Testament law, there was no power. But in the law of Christ living in us, there is power. And we want to live this way. And it's not out of duty and fear. Instead of willpower or guilt, it's the saving grace of God which empowers us and enables us to say no. Verse 12 is literally saying, training us to say no to ungodliness. <clears throat> Excuse me. And yes to living self controlled, upright, and godly lives. Church, our discipleship, that diagram, our discipleship has to occur on the foundation of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Our discipleship has to be totally consumed and wrapped by this idea of the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And as the gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ becomes more real to us and dear to us, sin becomes more repugnant to us. And the desire to live for God, to please God, to not grieve God, that grows and grows and becomes the driving motivation in our life. God's grace, it's magnificent. It, sa it, it saves us and it delivers us from the penalty of sin. It transforms us and delivers us from the power of sin. And in verse 13, final thought, God's grace is magnificent. It reassures us that one day we are going to be delivered from the presence of sin, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Christian, this morning, do you find yourself growing discouraged and disillusioned, maybe ambivalent in your Christian life? I understand how this can happen. It's easy to get wrapped up in the day-to-day -day cares of our lives, to be allured and tempted by the, the worldly system that we live in and forget what God's grace has in store for us. What does he have in store for us? One day, this Lord Jesus who died and was buried and rose and ascended is going to return. And John says, dear friends, on that day, as children of God, we do not know what we will be. It has not yet been made known to us. 
But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Listen, this is your destiny. Christian, this is your destiny. And when you grow weary and discouraged over the difficulty of the Christian life, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus, the one who lives through you, who has promised that one day he's going to return and he's given you the presence of the Holy Spirit. This is your destiny. This is your future. When you wonder if the toil, if the sacrifice, the difficulty of serving God, and it is hard, when the discipline of God comes into our lives to transform us and how hard that sometimes can be, when you wonder if it is worth it, look to Jesus, the one who is one day going to return. And he says, when I return, I will bring your rewards with me. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to to think about this important truth of the gospel of your grace that we have in Jesus Christ, how, how indispensable it is. Lord, there's some here this morning who've never experienced that day of salvation. I pray for them. Maybe they came in this morning and they're looking for answers. Help them to realize it starts with Christ, repenting of their sins and turning to him in faith. Give them eyes that can see the beauty of our Savior. And Lord Jesus, for those who are following you, but who get distracted by this world, by sin, we revert to living as if we're under the law. Give us the grace we need to keep our eyes fixed on you. May we experience your grace this week, afresh and anew with power that brings transformation. I ask these things for your glory, Lord Jesus, in this community and in the kingdom at large. Amen.